So we go home tomorrow, as if you didn't know. <laughs> and um, because of that, I would like to give sort of a transitional talk tonight. We'll talk a little bit more about daily life practice tomorrow, the two of us. But tonight I'd like to um, speak about a practice that can be taken up um, in daily life in a very kind of, I think, very helpful way. One of the discoveries on retreat is the amount of energy that it takes to talk, that it takes to speak. Sometimes we discover on retreats reservoirs of energy that we didn't know we had. And sometimes we notice it's because we're not talking. We're staying quiet. We're staying within ourselves. And we're not using the kind of energy that we usually use, sometimes in quite unconscious ways. This energy can be turned within, and this is what we practice doing on a retreat, is turning the energy within to be able to see more clearly what's actually going on. And we find that we're conserving energy, in a sense. Sometimes this is very enticing. You know, sometimes we can't wait to get off retreat to begin to speak once again. But other times we notice when we're on a retreat, things boomeranging in our minds, things that we said before we got on retreat that we wish we didn't say, um, things that we um, regret or sometimes seeing our unskillfulness in speaking. And sometimes we want to be, there's a particular yogi, um, I think he lives in California, but um, he has a blackboard, and all he does is write everything down on the blackboard. In other words, he's chosen not to speak at all. Sometimes we look and see how we speak, and we wish, you know, we kind of get a little dramatic about it, like we wish... um, We wouldn't ever talk again. Um, By the way, his blackboard is very small. I've seen the blackboard, and it's it's small. It's not a a huge thing. You can't really write even much of anything. So this arena of bringing mindfulness to our speech is what I'd like to speak about tonight because it's so interesting. It's so interesting And it's oftentimes not an easy area for either newer yogis or older yogis because there can be such an enormous degree of habit occurring over one's lifetime. There can be so many ways that we used to speak that we're still speaking, Um, you know, when we may choose not to, but we're oftentimes not that aware in this area. One teacher said, open your mouth and you're wrong. And another said, open the mouth and samsara falls out. And samsara means all the, you know, the sufferings of the world. It all falls out when we open our mouths. As a path factor, this is one of the factors on the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the path of peace, path of happiness that the Buddha taught. There are two aspects to wise speech. One is that 
wise speech. Uh, to be mindful of speech really is a very helpful guide for um, for action, meaning that it helps us to avoid harming ourselves and others, and it helps us to be more benign in the world, to look at this arena. But there's another level of this, too, which, which doesn't have to do with harm and non-harm. It has to do with using awareness of speech to see more clearly, yeah? Using our attentiveness to speech, which really is a practice all onto itself, you know, really takes a great deal of attention and energy and care to be able to see ourselves more clearly, you know, to actually get closer to what is happening, to be able to let go of arenas of suffering, not to simply see, but to see so that we can let go of wherever suffering is to be found, which is really our practice. So speaking can be a really wonderful practice and a way to um, bring really truly, we talk a lot about integrating practice into our daily life, which of course is absolutely essential. Being mindful of the way that we speak is a way to actualize this, to actually see if we can bring the practice into our everyday life. Mindfulness of speech involves investigation. It means listening to what is actually coming out of our mouths. Not what we think is coming out, not what we think should be coming out, not what we wish were coming out, but really settling back at times, taking on a specific part of the day, and settling back and actually forming the intention to be aware of whatever it is that is emerging. And in this way, we learn so much. When we observe how we speak in this way, we become aware of the habits that we formed in quite ordinary times in life, not when anything difficult is occurring. Just in our ordinary conversations, we can be aware of the particular habitual ways of speaking, you know, not um, not that they're causing enormous suffering, not that we're suffering greatly or or causing other suffering, just that it's mechanical. You know, it's not alive. It's not fresh because it's routine. You know, we're used to somebody says this to us, and we always say the same thing back. We're in contact with this particular person in our life, and we are always the same way in relationship to that person. We say it, they say this, they say that. And it gets quite, um, you know, quite, quite um, boring, for one thing, um, but also just, just not fresh, not awake, not alive, not sensitive anymore. And so to observe the habits that we may have picked up, I think is a very, very interesting, um, interesting thing. And sometimes we don't really notice our habits right away. It really takes a while. And then we'll be aware, oh, I always do this. You know, I do this a lot with this particular person. Or I have a habit of, you know, always having to get the last word, you know. Or I have a habit of um, always um, um, saying that I'm okay when I'm not. Or always saying that I'm not okay when I am, you know, whatever it might be. But really looking at what the habits are. And noticing why are we speaking? You know, what, what is our intention in speaking? Isn't 
the reason that we speak for the sake of connection and kindness. Isn't that why we speak? And to look at why we might be speaking that really isn't, doesn't have to do with connection and kindness. But perhaps is a movement away from ourselves. Perhaps there is a space between really what's happening and then what it is that we're saying. In other words, perhaps noticing at times our wanting to present ourselves in particular ways, to look a certain way to others or to one particular person. And so the speech getting quite contrived and and molded and um, being managed, in a sense, instead of just being quite free and easy. In quite difficult times, what we might call crunch times, when we find ourselves in a difficult period in life with the difficult situation that we're encountering or with a difficult work situation, with a, a particular relationship that we find ourselves really struggling with, this is when it's, it's a chance to see the more deeply ingrained conditioning. It's a chance to see uh, the... Um, the mental states, the emotions that maybe we thought were not quite the way they are or quite as strong until they get tapped into or touched. And then, you know, this, this, these times aren't so easy to be aware in because we tend to get quite upset when we're in a difficult situation or a difficult relationship. Those times, to me, are, are times when we have to be aware. You know, we really have to bring our practice into those situations to see, really, are we fighting against what our aspirations are? Is something happening where we're really going against ourselves in some way? And experimenting. Always in practice, we want to experiment. So in these kinds of situations, experimenting and seeing if we might try to go about it in a way that is unfamiliar to us. And we're, we're so familiar with our familiar ways. Trying something that is unfamiliar is oftentimes a really interesting thing to do. Uh, in other words, if we're used to um, not talking in a particular situation, talking. If we're used to always um, talking and trying to convince the other person of what we um, think we need to convince them of, then being silent being quiet and just for a space of time, not, not forever, of course, but just for a space of time to see what can evolve and move and change out of that. In other words, seeing if we can be more creative rather than lost in habit. When we find ourselves in these difficult situations, we can become very aware of our longing, our longing for connection and just missing it at times. We can become very aware of the uh, strength of wanting to get rid of something or wanting to control someone or wanting to control ourselves in some way. We can be very aware of confusion, the mind just simply being confused. And sometimes our thinking we have to talk anyway. Mm. One um, interesting thing to look at, I think, is when we're trying to say something uh, that can't be heard. That absolutely, for whatever the reason, even though it should be heard, and at some point, hopefully, it will be heard, it can't be heard. And what is happening within, that stress within, that tension within, when we try over and over again, 
seems to me when this is happening, and we've all encountered situations like this in our life, we need to try something different. You know, we need to perhaps apply patience and um, see if there's a little bit of a different way of working with it than pushing, pushing, pushing when it's not heard. It's an interesting area because oftentimes we find this out after we've pushed, you know, and, and already it's a catastrophe. But to see if we can be aware in the midst of it at any point, at any point, whether pre-catastrophe or post-catastrophe, at any point in the midst of it, to try something new, to try something different. And by trying something different, I mean listening more closely to what it is that we're saying. And then experimenting, being creative, seeing if there's another situation in which it could be heard. You know, setting things up in a way in which perhaps the other person um, may feel a little bit less defensive. You know? Or setting a situation up where it's, it's um, more comfortable for both you and that other person. Um, but really, these are, are just you know, ideas. It's the idea, really, is to try to find a creative way to work with what seemingly is impossible. We find something is impossible, and many times, if it's important to us, we push anyway. You know? And then we find ourselves enormously frustrated and enormously caught. And so in trying something different, which might be um, setting up the situation differently or, or being silent for a while, waiting for it to, to cool out, calm down, then we can still um, be with it, but be with it perhaps in a way that it can be heard. So speaking is a guide to the inner life. It's really a reflection of the mind, and that's why it's such a great practice. We can, of course, in our practice, observe the mind and see thoughts coming and going, and this is what we're doing. See emotions, see mental states, see the torments of heart coming and going, and this is great. This is our practice. Speaking brings it to another level because we're not just noticing in our minds the coming and going of thoughts and emotions and mental states. We're actually making it visible, you know, so we can actually see what is happening, and then we can refer back. We know more. We can bring kindness and care and wisdom to the inner torments of heart, and we can let go. In other words, it gives us more access to our inner environment. I'm sure that, um, that you're familiar with the phenomena that can so commonly happen, which is having a conversation and having not any idea about what you said in the conversation, yeah? particularly conversations that we find ourselves upset or angry within, uh, someone afterwards saying, well, you said this, you said that. Well, actually, you know, you weren't around for it. So it's hard, it's hard to say what one did say. Yeah? Or even just other situations, not when one is angry, but just because of not having brought much mindfulness to this arena yet, getting so caught up, wanting something so much in the conversation, you know, being so caught up in the desire, in the wanting, that we lose our connection with ourselves. Yeah. Always a very wonderful thing when we're speaking with anyone is to be aware of the feet touching the floor. You know, just the simplicity of the feet touching the floor. 
or if we're sitting, you know, aware of the sitting bones touching the chair. Uh, Just something where we're not out of ourselves, because when we're out of ourselves, anything can happen, and we won't know it. So more and more ways to uh, come in ourselves so that we do at least know, uh, okay, you know, things come out of our mouth, and this is how it is. But at least we know it, and then we can begin to uh, see more clearly and let go of that which is not serving us and is not serving others. So examining our speech helps us to see our minds. Now, it's not to identify with our speech as being us. You know, we keep talking about not identifying with thoughts, not identifying with emotions. Um, mental states arise and pass away and don't need to define who, who one is. It's the same thing bringing mindfulness to speech. You know, when one discovers different patterns or different habits, it's not as if one is is one speech. It's just that so often we're not our speech. In other words, there's this huge gap between how we think things are and what is actually coming out of our mouths. And this is where healing can take place, is to bring awareness to speaking. Seeing the gap between our ideals and the actuality of things. Speech is a concrete expression of that gap. It's a discovery of the harmonious ground that can be found between the inner and the outer, between our inner reality and how we are with others, how we are in this world. Really seeing that it is possible for there to be deep harmony. It is possible for there to be not so much suffering. It's possible for there to be enormous I don't know, the word fun is coming to mind, but something along those lines, something quite, you know, that that has to do with connection and that has to do with with kindness. Being mindful of speaking can be a vehicle of freedom. It's a process of shifting from the mechanical to the conscious. It's a process of shifting from that which is reflexive to a wise response from moment to moment. Not rehearsing, not trying to get it down, um, not trying to be perfect or anything along those lines, but in letting go of the um, reflexive, in letting go of the mechanical, what can open up to us is something quite new that surprises us at times. You know, unplanned, unrehearsed moving from the reactive to that which is wise and compassionate, noticing through how we speak the reactivity and seeing if there's something else that can come in its place. Not trying for perfection. There's definitely no, you know, quote, spiritual, unquote, way to speak. Uh, Trying to speak in a spiritual way can actually be a huge problem. Uh, You know... It can create enormous barriers, an enormous separation um, between us, and really it can be quite canned and quite unfresh, really just falling into cliche after cliche, which doesn't have anything to do with freedom. Looking at how we speak in a fresh way that is free from assumptions. One has to be quite innocent um, in being mindful of speech. And I would also say we have to be able to tolerate some degree of discomfort 
because when we first begin this work, it's somewhat devastating for most of us to notice what is actually happening. So expanding our ability to tolerate ourselves or to tolerate discomfort is really actually quite necessary in in this kind of work. Looking at the difference between investigation and condemnation. Investigation is listening, is listening deeply, is hearing what is actually happening and not what we think should be happening. Condemnation is immediately dismissing oneself, immediately thinking, I've said something wrong. This doesn't help us to actually see what we're actually saying. Discovering the themes that we talk about, you know, discovering the, the subjects and the themes that we alight upon over and over again, discovering the tone of voice that we find ourselves using, you know, being very sensitive and aware of the tone of voice, being aware of the vocabulary that we choose to use, you know, just, just being aware of the choice of words that we choose from time to time. Mindfulness of speech can indeed be a stepping stone. It can be a way to bring light to a complex inner network. It's a way, it's kind of going from the outside in, noticing how we speak and then allowing that to reflect inwardly to see what is actually happening inwardly. We might notice when we begin to pay attention to our speech that uh, there's some degree of fragmentation. And what I mean by this is that we speak differently to different people. We speak differently to our family than we do to our friends. We speak differently to our friends than we do to the person that we're buying the newspaper um, from. Um, We speak differently to people that we know than people that we don't know. I mean, sometimes we speak much more kindly to people we don't know than people that we do. Um, sometimes it's the other way around. Uh, so it's really to explore this on, on one's own, to notice what is actually happening. Are we caught in some way that we need not be? There are four uh, guidelines that the Buddha offered that may or may not be helpful to you, but they are ways to um, s- to be able to see how we speak with a little bit more clarity. So I'd like to speak about them as well. All these of these guidelines really have to do with kindness and connection. So to listen to them in the light of kindness and connection. The first guideline is looking at whether we speak truthfully or not. Just simply observing whether that which is true is coming out of our mouths or not, which, of course, can include uh, subtleties like exaggerating or understating, which is, I think, a very rich and interesting arena. Noticing when we don't speak truthfully and noticing what comes out of that, what's, what happens out of that. We might notice that in the effort to say that which is true, there's greater simplicity in life. The mind is naturally quite uh, quiet and receptive and soft. We might find that when we speak truthfully, we can let go of pretense. We can let go of having to 
present ourselves in some way, which is oftentimes why we don't say what's true, is because of insecurity, not wanting to be seen in a particular way when, you know, from, from a dharmic point of view, who cares? It's really just how things are from moment to moment. With speaking that which is true, we discover an ease, we discover an inner confidence in ourselves, and we find that we can be trusted. We trust ourselves and others trust us. And we find that there is more um, self-respect and we can be a little bit less free of guilt. We also find that life is less complicated. When we don't tell the truth, we have to remember what we've said. And this can make life enormously complicated. We have to remember our lies, which makes us rigid and controlled and tense and brings about a lot more thought than may be necessary. When I was in high school, uh, my sisters and I all were very bad. (laughs) We did uh, everything, and we did it... Uh, kind of in tandem together, uh, you know, all sorts of things that uh, my parents um, would not have approved of. And so to do it, to be able to do it, uh, we developed this whole kind of system within ourselves, with three of us, about who was going to lie and about when, about, you know, when it would happen. And then we'd have to keep in touch with the third sister, so the third sister would know what was happening. And my parents were, you know, somewhat... Um, hypervigilant. So they would catch like tiny little things. We had to be really in line with the, <laughs> like the smallest little things. And, you know, I, I don't, I have to say it was sort of worth it because I got to do things that I, I, I did. So, you know, it's not like I can look back and, and say it wasn't worth it. But on the other hand, it was so wonderful to let it go. Yeah. I mean, I was also really aware that my life got immediately more simple when I let it go, it was um, it was quite interesting. The three of us actually got together and decided we had to we had to stop it because um, we were all getting unbelievably uh, tied up around each other. Um, my mother said that she um, always wanted me to be freer than her, but she didn't expect that I would go that far. <laughs> so I mean, there was some delight in it, but you know, of course, a lot of worry. What we uh, notice is that when we are hesitant to say that which is true, that we really are hesitant for there to be real intimacy. Um, it's really, there's really a sense of separation when we are, are not saying what's true. We find that what comes about in the mind is confusion, uh, which is really the opposite of where we're going in practice, which is towards clarity and brightness and luminosity. Uh, when we're clouding the mind by not saying that which is true, then there is this kind of cloudiness uh, that arises. Honesty on the path is really key because we're attempting to be honest from moment to moment in our internal experience. Honesty is probably one of the most important aspects of the path is letting go of inward inner pretense and seeing if from moment to moment we can see things exactly as they are. So, of course, if we're saying, you know, that something is different than the way it is, it's going to be in conflict 
with this vital quality that is so important for freedom. It's really a statement of our commitment to what's real and not to what is just an image or what is untrue. Devotion to true speech is a yearning for reality. It's a yearning uh, for that which is true, meaning more than the kind of worldly structure, which may value pretense, which really can value confusion, which really can value appearance and um, accumulation a whole lot more than just honesty and simplicity in seeing that which is true. So it's a huge thing to take on uh, the practice of simply attempting to say what's true. Another aspect is that of um, looking at whether our speech is unifying or whether it's divisive. In other words, whether it brings people together, which is inwardly unifying when we do this, or um, and supportive, or whether it's undermining and divisive. Oftentimes, when we speak in a divisive way, and what I mean by devices, divisive is pitting one group another against another group, or um, pitting one person against another person. Sometimes when we do this, um, it really is because we want closeness. We want intimacy with the person that we're talking to when we're talking in a, in a divisive way about someone else or in a negative way. But the problem is we lose our intimacy with ourselves when it's at somebody else's expense. So that desire, that longing, you know, that beautiful longing for intimacy really gets thwarted because we find ourselves outside of ourselves and not inwardly intimate. Sometimes as well, we find ourselves speaking in a divisive way because we don't have any idea about how to work skillfully with anger. In other words, we don't know how to talk to the person we're having the difficulty with. So we you know, do our best. We talk to someone else about that person. Um, but you know, certainly t- in particular situations, to talk to a person that we trust and to talk to somebody who um, can stay balanced is a very helpful thing to do. Uh, and to also learn how to say that which is difficult is an incredibly important skill in our life, in our practice. You know, To be able to, to take on, and I see this as something that we have to try, 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 and then it gets easier if we do it. You know, It's not something that we can have aspirations towards or think um, we should be able to do, or um, you know, be very down on ourselves because we can't do it, because it's a very difficult thing to do. But I think if we start small and we take certain situations in our life and we practice saying that which is difficult in a kind way, that we learn more about what that looks like. Uh, it's something that we can only each do on our own. But we learn more about what is possible in taking on that practice. It can be a habit to um, talk with someone, with a friend, and simply um, 
share projections or conclusions about someone as if it were true when we have no idea whether it's true or not. It can really just be a habit. I want to read something to you by Rumi. Four Indians enter a mosque and begin the prostrations, deep, sincere praying. But a priest walks by, and one of the Indians, without thinking, says, Oh, are you going to give the call to prayers now? Is it time? The second Indian, under his breath, You spoke. Now your prayers are invalid. The third, Uncle, don't scold him. You've done the same thing. Correct yourself. The fourth, also out loud, Praise to God I haven't made the mistake of these three. So all four prayers are interrupted, with the three fault finders more at fault than the original speaker. Blessed is one who sees his weakness, and blessed is one who, when he sees a flaw in someone else, takes responsibility for it. Because half of any person is wrong and weak and off the path. Half. The other half is dancing and swimming and flying in the invisible joy. Because half of any person is wrong and weak and off the path, half, the other half, is dancing and swimming and flying in the invisible joy. Speaking in a unifying way doesn't at all mean engaging in any kind of conspiracy of silence when that which needs to be said is being held back. Integrity doesn't at all mean complying with that which is harming, which, with that which is off. But to learn how to do this is its own thing. You know, We have to practice to learn how to do this. I do think we need to help each other, um, to support each other in this, to speak that which is true without anger, This is not an easy thing to do. But I do think that if we take it up as a practice and we help each other, that it is possible. The third arena is looking at our tone of voice, basically. Noticing whether our tone of voice and our vocabulary, the words we use, whether this is gentle and kind or whether it's harsh and abrasive. We can notice that when our tone is harsh and abrasive, that we push people away. Maybe that's not our intention at all, but people become afraid of us. Very easily, people become afraid of us, and we find ourselves pushing others away, or we find others just not around, and we, we can look back and see why. Harsh speech is speech that causes pain to the hearer. It's speech that is arrogant or angry or sarcastic. We might notice impatience. We might notice irritation. We might notice when this kind of speaking is occurring that something is happening in that moment, that inwardly what is occurring is not wanting something to be the way it is, and then speech coming out of that. It rubs up very much against the I want something to be a particular way. I want you to be a particular way. This is oftentimes not easy to see in oneself. Lying is fairly easy to see in oneself. Um, Divisive speech is somewhat easy to see in oneself. Harsh speech can be a bit of a 
of an ingrained pattern or habit where um, I think if someone is giving us that back, we need to take it seriously because it is really difficult to see in ourselves. I think that the reason it's hard to see in ourselves is because often when we're doing it, it's, we, we are actually feeling powerless. We're not feeling so powerful. We're feeling that something is happening, and we don't have a whole lot of power in the situation. And so to receive um, others, um, you know, friends, to really listen to any little hint we get about this is usually really important. Listening to our tone, because we may not be fully aware of the depth of the anger that we're experiencing. Now, the other person might be aware of the level of the, of the upset or of the anger, but we might not be aware of it. Gentle and kind speech, or speech that um, is not harsh, is speech that is uh, connecting rather than dismissive. Aldous Huxley said that most of our spiritual practice is learning to be kinder to one another. So it's so fundamental to work with this arena of speech. For some of us, it's very, very rare, and yet we want to see it when it happens. For others, it's more of a um, habit or a pattern, and so we really want to see it if it's happening. The fourth is looking at the arena of um, what's called useful speech. Uh, it's translated as trying, trying to avoid idle chatter. But actually, what it means, and what do we do all the time, you know, what it means is, is um, seeing if our speech has meaning to it. You know, is, is it meaningful in some way, or is it disconnected? There is an enormous degree of... Um, you know, useless or idle information in this world. It's it, There's so much these days, and it's so easy to kind of just get absorbed into it. But when we're speaking in a way that feels disconnected or feels like it doesn't have much meaning to it, looking at the energy behind it, what's feeding it? You know, is there loneliness? Is there boredom? Are we speaking to get away from boredom? Are we speaking... Um, because it's very difficult to notice the loneliness, you know, or whatever it might be, the restlessness, the fear. Is it possible not to exhaust ourselves by trying to get away, but instead using this as a way to look back at the disconnection within ourselves? Is it possible, when we find ourselves engaged in exhausting ourselves, basically, is it possible to refer back to... um, the loneliness, and to hold it, to be gentle, to accept it, to care for it until it leaves? Is it possible to be in this same way with boredom? Instead of trying always to get away boredom, which is to get away from boredom, which we may be engaged in our whole entire life, it's so much more interesting to see if we can be with it, to see if we can allow for it, and to see what happens when we do. Speaking in a way that is um, meaningful and, um, and not um, disconnected doesn't have to do with the content. You know, sometimes we, we might think that it has to do with what we're saying. But I think it's, it's really um, much, much more different than that. 
I was working uh, many years ago at this point. I cared for a man in his 70s who had lung cancer, and I was with him for six months before he died. And he couldn't speak very much because he would get so tired and cough. So we would spend our days together. I was initially there because of his interest in meditation. But what it turned into is um, cooking for him and um, making his bed and, um, you know, just doing very small things like that, whatever I could do to help around the house. So I was with him many hours a day, um, four or five days a week. And we would sit together in the kitchen. He couldn't really move much once he got out of bed. He would sit in the kitchen in his chair. And we would sit together in the kitchen, and every so often he would say something, and then there would be a long silence, and then I would say something, and he'd say something, and then there would be a silence. And we talked about nothing. We actually did not talk about meditation. We did a little bit in the beginning, but then what it turned into was talking about, you know, egg foo young and um, custard and the pots and the pans and, you know, tiny things like our kitchen life, the life of our kitchen. And what developed was something so um, palpable and beautiful and deep um, out of talking about nothing. And I, I think it was the attention that was there. Um, knowing that he was going to die soon, uh, there was an enormous attentiveness in the room that was very, very um, um, palpable, that both of us were very aware of. Um, but whatever it was, it was so clear that it didn't matter what we said, uh, that we could talk about very mundane, ordinary things all day long and never get to anything that you would say is significant or you know, profound or, you know, quote, meaningful. And yet, there was great meaning. There was great love. There was an enormous bond. Um, people would come in once in a while to, um, to visit us and um, would just kind of feel absorbed into it you know, and would end up talking about egg foo young and <laughs> things like that. It was nice to have a little you know, outer energy of egg foo young every once in a while. Um, I'm sort of obsessing about egg foo young because we um, had this idea that we were going to have an egg foo young dinner for people, but he died actually before we could could do that. It was very interesting, though, because it was clear to me that talking about nothing was actually something, was actually a big something to talk about nothing. And it was the silence integrated into it that made such a difference, and it was the attentiveness integrated into it that made such a difference. So taking up these four principles, if they're interesting to you, they're really just ways to look at the way that one speaks, and they, they, I think, can be helpful guidelines to look at which is more relevant for you, you know, because we're all different. Each one of us has different kind of conditioning. So when I was speaking, which arena did one think, ah, you know, I could explore this more. This would be interesting to explore more. And if something came to you, if something was immediately significant to you, then just to see uh, throughout the coming days, tomorrow when you start speaking and through the day and through the week, 
um, just to just to keep a very light kind of attention on it. Not heavy, not um, not too strict, not self-conscious or anything like that, not tight or tense. Just a very kind of gentle, loving attentiveness to that particular area, just to see what can come out of it. Is it possible for something different to come out of it? Can we see something a little bit more clearly? Remembering, I think it's so essential in being mindful of speech to remember compassion. You know, because we do speak in a totally mindless way. We have no idea, um, you know, we had no intention of saying something. And then there it's out there and it has this, this big impact. And then, you know, how do we kind of get it back? Well, we don't. We can never get anything back. But, you know, it, it comes and it goes. It's really to learn from it without trying to cling onto it, you know, or make it into who we are. If there isn't compassion and gentleness in our work with wise speech, we won't learn because we'll constantly be not wanting to listen to ourselves. Being aware of our speech in no way is a repression. It is experiencing the happiness of not saying something that we know is a separation from ourselves or from the person that we're speaking with. You know, when we find ourselves abandoning ourselves and we know before it's come out of our mouth, when it's rising up in the chest, to not say it, of course, can be a huge freedom. And we can embrace that freedom. We can enjoy that freedom. And then in speaking, we can enjoy uh, why we speak, which is to love one another, is to express our love for one another, is to be interested in one another and find out what, what is this? Who is this person sitting or standing in front of me? You know, what is actually happening? Um, it's, so, it's so interesting to meet another, another mind, another person. Being mindful of our speech in this way really can become a way of life. We really can attend. And so much can open up. So much that seems to be cloudy or um, or unclear to us can become clear. Let me finish with another poem by Rumi. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other, doesn't make any sense. Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have compassion of heart. May all beings live in freedom and in ease.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.